0: And now a message from our sponsor. Ladies, tired of drying your hair with the same old vacuum cleaner? Try Avon Shade brand new Beauty Locks portable hair dryer. It's smaller, it's faster, it's guaranteed to give you the hair you've always wanted in half the time. Beauty Locks is delicate and dainty just like you. The dryer weighs only a pound and easily fits in your hands. Now that's beauty and convenience. With a speedy motor that will dry your hair in as little as 25 minutes, you can get gorgeous hair without falling behind schedule. Don't worry about the little ones or that pie in the oven. Thanks to an extra-long extension cord, you can move around while primping your locks. Forget those long trips to the salon and no more waiting for hours under monster machines. Alvonshé gives you an easy and speedy hairdo that will blow your man away. Get it now at your nearest Macy's.
1: Hey there, it's Karen here. Anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do as human beings, over time and across cultures. Have you ever seen an ad, maybe on TV, in a magazine, or online, that was so clever it made you actually laugh, or just hit so close to home that it took you by surprise? What about an ad that was so unbelievably off that you couldn't believe it. anyone ever thought it was a good idea, much less got it greenlit and broadcast into the great collective unconsciousness. consciousness. Yeah, that Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, anyone else? Hmm. If you've ever wondered where this peculiarly capitalist form of communication came from, wondered why certain marketing campaigns work while others crash and burn, Or just been curious about the complex psychology behind getting people to open their wallets? Well, this is the episode for you. Popular historian and old friend Jem Daduchu brings us to the inner sanctum of New York City's 1920s ad men and traces their legacy straight on through to today's consumer economy predicated on universal social media channels that paradoxically target individual communications more precisely than ever before. So grab that fedora and follow me onto the swinging streets of New York City in the jazz age to learn how we got here and as always to think about where we might be headed next. Jem is a populist historian, historical novelist, and historical podcaster on Condensed Histories, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. Jem's an authority on, frankly, too many interesting historical topics to specify here, but I'll just say that they range all the way from ancient Rome through to the emergence of the modern global consumer economy. His most recent book is a highly topical fictional treatment of parallels between the 1918 Spanish flu and COVID-19. Titled Edge of Life, you can find it on Amazon. Jem, so exciting to have you back.
2: Always a pleasure, Karen.
1: So we're going to talk about something in kind of the recent historic past today, which is is fun. Um, I think you and I have really talked more in... In more distant time periods. So this is gonna be great. And I I even I'm gonna give away a little spoiler. I, I have some personal experience in the advertising industry. So at the appointed time in the conversation, I'm I'm excited to to sort of throw that in the mix and and see how it how it blends up with everything we've already talked about.
2: Now, out of interest, were you working in the on the agency side or on the media side?
1: Hmm, that's kind of a trick question because we had a media department. In the agency where I worked, but you know what? (laughs) Realistically, if you wanted to describe this organization I was working in, it was a loony bin. (laughs) I, I don't know. It was the only agency I ever worked for, but it was run by a megalomaniac. (laughs)
0: Yes,
2: there's a lot of them in the advertising world. And that would have meant that, depending on when you did it, Karen, because if you were on the agency side, I was on the media side. So the two of us might have had to have crossed swords or or had angry words about availability uh, if we were both still working in that industry.
1: You would have hooked me up. I know it. I'm actually not worried about that, in that hypothetical sense. (laughs) So, all right. You know, advertising... Is a really interesting subject, and I, I think, arguably, there's been some form of marketing going on throughout human history. And you know, in fact, we do have some interesting cultural evidence, ranging from ancient China and Egypt, Pompeii, medieval and early modern Europe. You know, signposts and um, um, bills of of advertising, and and for goodness' sake, even just just pub signs and 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 shop signs and things like this. But, um, you know, I think things really shifted uh, with the industrial revolution, which obviously would have increased the the scope and range of consumer goods that that needed pushing. But um, I'm just really uh, eager to hear your take on when and why the modern advertising industry emerged at the time it did and where it did.
2: You're absolutely right. Uh, the thing about the Industrial Revolution is, prior to the Industrial Revolution, we all largely lived in very small agrarian econ- uh, environments, uh, small little towns, hamlets, even, where if I needed to get bread, there was only one bakery in the town, so there was no need to advertise. But once you get to the Industrial Revolution, and just in the space of one generation, you get relatively small towns, be it Manchester in England or Chicago in America. And just in one generation, so 30 years, the population absolutely explodes. Now, in in Britain, in places like Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool, that led to huge outbreaks of cholera and it was all horrible. uh, And I'm pretty sure similar things happened in, in American cities too. But once you've got people together, they don't know where the bakery is anymore. And even though, of course, the vast majority of these workers were poor, They were starting to get a basic education literacy throughout the 1800s shot up massively in the Western world and in the industrialized world. So suddenly people even poor people were buying newspapers and reading things and getting their own opinions on things, but also. I may be working in a factory for a living wage, but how do I live? I need to find my place to buy food, buy drink, et cetera, buy clothing. And so that's when you get the the outbreak of what I would call modern advertising. You're absolutely right. There are examples of flyers promoting gladiatorial games from from ancient Rome, but, but calling it advertising in a modern sense just didn't really stick. So what I would say is that by the time we get to the 1920s, Although lots of things have already been invented, it's really in that decade that we start getting everything pulled together into what I would describe as modern living. Indeed, when I came out of university, I, uh, I had my degree in history, but I, I wanted to get a job. I wanted to get a, pr- a proper job that paid, paid the bills. And there I was as a media salesperson in the mid 1990s. And I was sitting there behind my desk. And what I did to generate thousands of pounds, because I was in Britain, thousands of pounds every single month, uh, every single week for this, uh, for this organization is I had a pad of paper, I had a pen, I had a box or decks of cards, literally cards with all the company's details and I had a telephone. And, there was, and I was sitting there in a suit and there was a little part of me thinking, this is basically the same way people were selling advertising back in the 1920s. And I think that you can draw a line from office living from the 1920s to the 1990s and very little has changed. But once you get to the end of the 1990s with the advent of the internet and email, suddenly everything takes another step uh, into, a, uh, into a new direction and it gets further yeah, away yeah. from that original Absolutely. way of doing office work. So yeah, there we go, that, that's my intro.
1: So Jim, how did the formation of an actual industry to service consumer needs Change the way that producers of goods pitched their wares.
2: So, what this is all down to is disposable income. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's something that gets brought up in advertising and economics all the time. Again, going back to these relatively poorly paid factory workers of the late 1800s, they would still be paid. And chances are they would have a little bit of money left over by the time they paid their rent and their rates and bought some food. So now they need to spend that money on something else. What is it? Well, that's where we get into the world of advertising. Because if you go back to the, let's say the medieval era, well, in theory, I always love this one piece of research that in the high middle ages in England, the average annual salary of a peasant would be 1 pound giving you a clear example of how nice round it's number high. yeah <laughs> 1 pound uh, but of course that peasant would never see that money everything was largely through barter coins existed but at the common man level you exchanged a pig for some bales of hay for some whatever but now we're in an actual proper monetary economy where literally everybody from the poorest to the richest has money in their pockets so what do I spend it on? Ha ha, advertising is here to save the day. And indeed, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're talking about this. In the late 1800s to the 1920s and dipping it briefly into the 1930s, it was the wild west of advertising. Today, there are organizations like the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority, and, and lots of, um, there's lots of laws that have been brought out that basically protects the consumer from outright lies. But those things just didn't exist when this advertising was starting to be created. So you a lot of people have looked at really old like Victorian adverts and laughed at them at how ludicrous and the, the claims were on some of these adverts. But they were you could get away with it in those days.
1: Absolutely. And and it, it was probably um you know, sort of this wonderful fantasy land that it, in a certain way kind of served everybody, you know, these people with minimal disposable income. I mean, they're purchasing something aspirational, right? They, they probably were really excited to, to follow the primrose path of whatever wasn't really true about these fabulous products that were going to change their, their life or their very persona.
2: Absolutely, yes. And, and so once we get into the 1920s, as I said, all these things had been invented earlier, but with this increase in disposable income, it, you're now getting down to the middle classes, having these things that today we would recognize as modern living. Things like, for example, a refrigerator. You might not think that that's a, a game changer, but pre-refrigeration, the it, unfortunately, sorry, we are talking about a patriarchal society here, so invariably the, the wife would be the homemaker, but pre-refrigeration, the, the wife would invariably have to go out pretty much either every day or every other day to buy food for the family because it would spoil at home. Once you've got refrigeration, you can put it all in, a, in one of those and you only have to now do the, the, the suddenly we got something like a, a weekly shop, which we all recognize today. Um, but that, that first time that was be a common thing was in the 1920s. Also by the 1920s, the car, You know, the car had been invented in the very late 1800s, but most of them were handmade. Companies like Mercedes were able to produce maybe five to ten a year. It was down to uh, Mr. Ford and Ford motor cars with the first mass production of automotive vehicles. And so, again, the cost had gone down enough that a middle class family might be able to afford a vehicle to drive around in. And and so what we're seeing is and and telephones were starting to be introduced to not just business environments, but but the home environment. So this is all looking apart from smartphones, apart from the Internet, all looking kind of familiar to us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I got to confess that what my brain did when you talked about the refrigerator and, and how it could cut down on the shopping load on, on the little lady of the house and, and the car coming into things. I was imagining that, um, you know, she got more time to say mop the floors or iron the clothing while her husband got more time to toodle around in the, in the automobile.
2: We will be getting into that in a minute and it isn't going to go well for the ladies. I apologize in advance. <laughs>
1: oh, it never does. Okay, that's all right. I'm not gonna hold it against you. I'm not gonna shoot the messenger. Um, last question before we dive in, Jem, are we gonna focus on any particular geographic area in our conversation today?
2: Well, I thought a good place to, to deal with this. Now, to be fair, advertising, like i said, by the time we get into the 20th century, every modern industrialized country and of course at the time of the early 20th century some of these industrialized nations had empires as well there would be advertising throughout their territories let's use that term but i figured to keep things at least manageable welcome to new york the year is 1920 and uh, because new york and london were two epicenters uh, of advertising so it wouldn't be weird to be talking about somebody working in the world of advertising in the 1920s in New York. And I mean, I've even decided to to give him a name. Let's call him Arthur because nobody's called Arthur anymore. So hi, Arthur.
1: Arthur, it is a pleasure to meet you. Would you be kind enough to, through Gem, of course, tell us what (laughs) you wake up thinking about on any given day?
2: Well, uh, Arthur would get up and as I said, uh, would quite often we're now into sort of familiar territory would get up would perhaps have a bowl of cereal by now in the 1920s a bowl of cereal as opposed to a, a piece of toast and some bacon i mean he could have that if he wanted to but this, God, eating... who would
1: choose a bowl of cereal over some bacon i got well, t- okay. I, with... I do not understand cereal that's that, this, this, that, n- neither here nor there but okay for the sake but, of argument but, he's hey, eating look... cereal
2: And let's imagine Arthur's working on the uh, on the Kellogg's account. So he's being. Oh, so he
1: he has to do that.
2: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So so there's so there's that he would get up. He would uh, kiss his wife. Good day. Maybe he would rub annoyingly the hair on the top of the head of the child in the in the house. And then he would put on let's say it's it's summertime. So he would put on his straw hat. Uh, he would tie, adjust his tie and step out into the, the great world beyond. And again, we're talking 1920, so he was likely to use public transport in New York, so he would get on the Metro. And so all of this, Barber hat, is very familiar to most people who live in the metropolitan area of, of New York. He would take the Metro, ride it into town, and then he would go to his office where he would, the first thing he would do is do the internet of the day, read the morning edition newspaper, what's new, and also have a look through that newspaper about who is advertising at the moment as well. Maybe he's looking through one of his adverts and checking the copy, checking that all the words are in the right place, uh, in the right position as well. Or maybe he's checking the competition. Maybe there's the, the, he realizes there's a new campaign coming from uh, another competitive brand. It's like, ah, oh, we didn't get that one, oh dear. That's gonna be thousands of dollars our company doesn't get. And so it's time to sort of poke the, uh, maybe the account uh, executive or the business development team to see if they can start uh, pitching for that business.
1: When does he have his first martini?
2: (laughs) Well, of course we are in the 1920s. And by then in America, the Volstead Act had been enacted and we are now in a dry nation. Indeed. That doesn't uh,
1: matter. Come on. There's got to be a speakeasy in the canteen somewhere.
2: The speakeasies were things you went to in the evening, they were quite subversive. And also uh, the weird thing about the speakeasies is they were strangely egalitarian because it was all illegal, therefore normal social conventions tended to slide away. If you're gonna have a dangerous drink, maybe you're gonna listen to some dangerous music as well. There's this new thing on on the scene called jazz, which means you've got all these, I'm gonna use modern phrases because I don't want to get killed here, but you'd get African-American bands playing this new cool music in these normal, places where you could consume some alcohol all at the same time there was a new type of woman on the scene as well the flapper with her audaciously (laughs) short skirt going up to the knee and her audaciously short hair going down to the ear so all of this is kind of new and exciting I'm gonna I'm gonna say Arthur's a good guy he's not looking at the flappers but he's he might have a martini and he's uh, he's listening to the jazz music
1: it's okay to look he can <laughs> Okay. So what do, do you think this guy would have had a regular daily routine or let's talk a little bit um, to the extent it's possible about how an agency would have been organized. It was sort of a new beast, right?
2: Well, the agencies had been around for a couple of generations. Uh, the, 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 you know, so he might well have joined a company where, basically the grandfather has passed it down to the son has now passed it down to the, the their son and, and so that there's a a, a a standard way of doing things in this particular agency oh. but there are but there's also the rise of media again something that was invented beforehand but saw a real rise in the 1920s was magazines, particularly glamorous magazines, things like fashion magazines or indeed uh, magazines to do with things like Hollywood. And these magazines, uh, basically the reason why they improved is, I don't want to get too technical, but printing production processes improved massively in the 1920s and also logistics, things like the, the railways and also networks of vans. We've all seen those movies where the van pulls up to the side of the of the news newspaper salesperson and throw, tosses out a bundle of, of of, of papers and then drives off it's a,
1: it's this satisfying thwack um, <laughs> when it hits yeah, the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> also, also, just before this era, there was a, a whole period where where young boys were paid, paper boys were, were not just delivering newspapers, but actually selling them, you know, on and then making a bit of money on the side, you know, standing there. They actually tried to unionize. All of this was turned into a musical. I think it's called Newsies and a, yeah, um, yeah, 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 a yeah. very young Christian Bale. Uh, so batman uh, plays the main part in that movie.
1: Oh, right. Well, okay, something really grabbed my attention that you said uh, a minute or so ago that this was kind of a family business structure in some cases.
2: It, it could be, and obviously over the over the years things would become a bit more egalitarian. I think it is worth pointing out that we are still talking about a vastly male dominated Uh, Environment, because while I was talking about the speakeasies and the fact that America was dry, we've also got another amendment that finally gives women the right to vote. Now, Mm -hmm. just on that point, you know, uh, the American amendments of the Constitution, I find this a really fascinating topic about how some of these amendments are. Everybody knows about the Second Amendment. As soon as I say the Second Amendment, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you know what I'm talking about when I say the 13th Amendment. But um, do you know the amendments for um, the prohibition of alcohol and the rights to give women a vote?
1: You mean the numbers?
2: The numbers, yeah. And also, which one came first? What do you think was more important? Making America dry or giving 50% of the population the right to vote?
1: Oh, making America dry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you're American, you got that right, yes. So that one was the 18th Amendment, and the, the right for women to, to vote was the 19th Amendment. Now, the, they only they're only separated by about uh, a year. Uh, so basically, the, the Volstead Act was actually the, the 18th Amendment about making America dry, uh, prohibition. That was sort of ratified in 1919, but it only came into power or came into um, into process at the, right at the beginning of nineteen twenty. The Women's uh, Act um, was also in 1920, which gave them a chance to vote in the election for the first time—the presidential election.
1: Let's just imagine we have somebody who is not in in a in a family dynasty that has broken into this business previously. How how would one come to it? Well, it was
2: like getting any other job. Uh, Again, to people who are listening to this podcast and perhaps you're 30 years old or or younger, you would get it all on the Internet. Whereas what we all used to do uh, is you would look in the back of newspapers or in the back of magazines, particularly business magazines, which would specifically have a section for jobs. Um, And that's where I first started. I worked on a magazine called Marketing. I think you can guess what the topic of the magazine was. And therefore, the back of the magazine was full of jobs like marketing manager brand executive (laughs) things like that and and so yeah if you wanted to get a job in those days you would you look in 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 britain for example in the 80s and 90s if you just come out of university the national newspaper the guardian was the place for graduate recruitment so it didn't matter what your political affiliations were didn't matter whether you liked the guardian or not you bought it on a saturday because it would have page after page of jobs that you could potentially get
1: what would make a candidate attractive for this kind of job or or to put it another way what what would make a good ad man in those
2: now days? this is really interesting because up until the very late 1970s this is the really counterintuitive thing but is picked up in that perhaps one tv show you've seen about advertising mad men it was seen as quite a legitimate job to go to after serving in the armed forces. And Donald Draper was a Korean War veteran in in Mad Men. So picking up on Arthur, let's imagine that he, um, I'll give you a a scenario that a lot of people might think, oh, that's a bit weird, but actually this applied to tens of thousands of Americans. So let's imagine he's born in 1895, so that by the time we get to to World War One, he's in his early 20s, he enlists as a doughboy. By the time he is trained and shipped over to Europe, it's now October 1918, we know the war's about to end, but he doesn't know that, however, he and thousands of other American soldiers are arriving on the Western Front and accidentally bringing with them Spanish flu. Now, I'd just like to point this out, uh, with the world of COVID, a lot of people now, now know this, but this is something I've been studying for years, Spanish flu, the reason why it's called Spanish flu, this, this influenza that swept around the world, think about the times with COVID where we talk about peaks of infection, here comes a third wave. There are a total of four waves of Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920. It was actually the second wave in the spring of, of 1919 that was actually the most lethal of the, of the waves. And the reason why it's called Spanish flu is Spain was one of the few major countries that was not part of World War One. So they were one of the few countries that was honest about how many people were dying from this illness. Places like Britain, they didn't want to stack up deaths from Spanish flu and deaths on the front line. It looks like it's a massacre. So... If you only read the numbers, it looked like Spain was disproportionately affected by this and therefore that must be where it's from. Now it's still a hot topic of discussion, but the general consensus is it probably started in America and it was all these men going over to the Western front that brought it with them. So Arthur accidentally is one of the people helping to bring this infection into Europe and he actually never sees service. He he never sees action, I should say. He arrives in Europe, he falls ill, And by the time the armistice is declared in in early to mid-November, he is still lying in in a hospital bed, mortally sick from this infection. The other irony of this is of course, we all now know how quickly these diseases can spread. So you have to put down a good quarantine. And so the sweet irony is that during World War I, Germany had created a very effective quarantine zone called the Western Front. So they didn't get Spanish flu until once peace had been declared because then you've got the mingling of the troops from both sides and now it spreads into Germany, killing thousands.
1: It makes this whole endless COVID thing seem like we're just at the beginning. Did I say that out loud? Let's
2: move on. Well, well, look, (laughs) COVID's been around at time of recording about uh, 18 months. Spanish flu was around for about uh, two years. So it's pretty similar. But here's the thing. The reason why uh, Spanish flu influenza was so lethal is normally flu affects old people. For some reason, this mutated and affected young, healthy men and women. So these soldiers who are packed together tightly were incredibly vulnerable to this infection. And by the time it had gone around the world four times, it is estimated that 80, 80 million people had died of yeah. the Spanish flu. Just... By comparison, again, at time of recording, a little over 3 million have died of COVID. So look, COVID's no picnic, it's no walk in the park, but it's not even, it's not even, well, it's 10% as lethal as as this thing that was ripping through the, the world at this time. So you did have mask wearing 100 years ago in New York. Um, there, there were these fears of infection. This all sounds rather familiar. Uh, and yet it, it obviously got forgotten from the 1930s up until 2019.
1: I'm just gonna lead you right back, back into the ad agency by saying, okay, so Arthur rocks up, he's got his mask on, he coughs into his elbow. He, he passes the prerequisite, but why would he get the job?
2: Um, well, uh, obviously military service, that, that's going to help. Um, he would probably have to, to pass a basic examination. He's literate. Um, he's able to perhaps write some copy there, then and there. I mean, advertise, uh, sorry, not advertising, but uh, job in, interviews change all the time. You know, he would have spent time on his resume, made sure it looked good and uh, he, you know, he got lucky. Bit like probably you, bit like probably me. Uh, you know, we we all just got lucky. They they had a spare chair at that moment, and it's like, yeah, they they seem like they are capable, and we we try our luck. Uh, you know, with all of us in our first proper job, it's a huge gamble for both the company, but also for us as well.
1: And was this was this a really coveted kind of gig? You know, was this the kind of thing that a young man back from the military would? would really hope oh you know this would be my my top choice for whatever the reasons
2: well yes because we're talking about uh white collar workers here as opposed to uh, as opposed to blue collar workers you know blue collar basically means you're wearing a denim shirt because you're in a, some sort of factory it's dirty smelly you're paid by the hour whereas in something like advertising it's simply not as hard physically on you and it's you know something a bit different you get to wear a nicer suit
1: Yeah. And, and what was the potential for upward mobility, you know, both in terms of the economics, which uh, obviously a white collar job is, is going to pay more than a blue collar one in a factory, but how about the social capital involved? Yeah
2: well I mean that you you would be I guess that you'd use the term upwardly mobile you, if you did well m- advertising agencies and media companies would tend to be meritocratic you might not necessarily get to the absolute top but you could absolutely become a manager running your own team uh, it could involve perhaps now more regional work uh, so all these sorts of things can happen to create a situation where there are lots of opportunities for the right-minded individual. Like, why don't you open up an office in Chicago for us?
1: Could you tell me at all how Arthur might have interacted with all the other people on whom his work depended? So you know, myself, I I have in my mind a dim memory of of how (laughs) I had to sort of deal with so many different constituencies. You know, obviously there was the the client side there, there was sort of regulations there, there was my crazy boss, Um, you know, we had to make sure we didn't run afoul of any sort of consumer legislation. And then of course, there's thinking about the individual consumer. So, you know, how different or similar was it for somebody like Arthur?
2: Well as you pointed out correctly the client because they've got the money they're treated like royalty everybody worries about what's the client thinking I you know full disclosure one of my best friends is a very senior person in in a very large advertising agency and his job is to keep a very well-known household brand happy across the whole world so uh yeah he has a you know the the client says jump he says how high that's just the option because we're talking <laughs> we're talking literally about Hundred million or more in terms of money being spent globally. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making those numbers up, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's more than that. So, and it would be the same thing in this situation. But obviously, when when there is an order coming in, if if you know if we are now placing advertisements in the New York Post, then uh, we need to actually have a record of that. So, I don't know if you remember this, Karen, but but again, with, for me, before the time of computers, I would have this order form which had several different colored sheets underneath each other. And it was made from carbon paper. So what you would do is you'd write out all the details on the top sheet and you'd keep that top sheet for your your team's records. So you can say, yeah, this, this half page advert's definitely running in the New York Post on Friday. It's going to be on page five and it's going to be promoting, let's say, Kellogg's. Um, however, then the other, other departments need to know about that, the, the team that are actually going to be making the advertisement and, and, and other teams too. So because you press down on that top page and it's made of carbon paper, underneath it are other identical pages that you've pushed through on so that you've got identical copies and you pass them on. And these carbon copies are why, when you send an email, you send it to somebody, and you have the option to CC it to somebody else. I know. What does CC I, I, stand for? Carbon copy. <laughs> carbon copy. Children don't know that.
1: I, I, I love that you actually explained that so clearly and step by step. Um, I actually had a similar conversation with one of my kids recently, which then moved into something which I'm not even sure if you guys had this over here in the day in the UK, but. Did, did they have mimeograph machines in school? I know what you mean. The Reproduce ones which you kind of... purple. And you you like crank them up and they Yes, you smell. crank it.
2: That's the thing. It was I almost mean, I... like churning butter.
1: i was <laughs> like like yeah I had on my prairie skirt and I tied up the cow and then I helped the teacher (laughs) reproduce the the, the math worksheets my daughter looked at me like I had five heads I said oh never mind what would you like for dinner but anyway um we have to we have to keep the memory of these these very tactile hands-on technologies alive thank you for supporting me in that personal passion Jim
2: that's absolutely fine
1: what's the biggest mistake one of these admin could make on the job
2: well, obviously, if the ad advertisement didn't run, that would be a big problem. If there was some kind of typographic error, that would also be a problem. This is where we get the term, mind your P's and Q's, because when you are printing stuff, you basically have this huge grid where you put in lots of little metal, metal letters, um, but they're all reversed when you're printing. So a P and a Q oh, can look the wrong way round.
1: I didn't know that. I love that story.
2: So yes, yeah, so there can be, there, there were plenty of typos that happened in the past. Uh, there, you know, it could go in the wrong edition. Um, there are all kinds of er- errors and issues that would happen. And because you are the account manager of this particular campaign, you're going to be the one getting it in the neck. Even though it was printed in New Jersey by a guy called Kevin, nobody knows who Kevin is. Uh, so it's all your fault and you better fix it.
1: Who, if anybody, held these agencies accountable? I mean, obviously the client could say, well, that this isn't what we asked for, but if something incorrect or, you know, stretching the truth was claimed, for example, about a product, what was there any, you know, governmental or or consumer group oversight to speak of?
2: Yes, there were, well, there were pressure groups then as there are now, uh, chances to sort of Ban. We don't like what you're doing, so we're now going to create a campaign, a letter writing campaign saying, please stop this or stop supporting this really fascinating stuff. Obviously, now it just takes a few tweets. but the concept of cancel culture was, was alive and well 100 years ago. It's not a new thing. It's just we've, uh, we've weaponized it with the speed of the internet. Um, so those sorts of things would happen. But basically, the government and federal legislation was very slow to react. It, it basically didn't put in laws anticipating problems. It only brought in laws when clearly problems were happening. I mean, a, a classic example being that by the 1980s all cigarette advertising had been taken off television it was just not allowed right, right,
0: uh, right,
2: so right. you know it, but you know that's the 1980s by by then arthur would be an old man indeed uh, so um yeah so uh, it, in in the tw- 1920s you, you could almost get away with whatever you you wanted
1: yeah right and i think that's such an interesting point we'll return to that one about the impact that you know technology um advances and particularly the proliferation of instant 24-7 media such as the internet has has had on advertising I mean as it is on human life in every possible way so yeah okay I, I'd love before we dive into uh, a few of the major kind of case studies that have been mentioned in passing so far um, for example serial to just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the underpinning for this whole industry and, and the premises on, on which it, it's, it's based, you know, this idea of being able to influence consumer behavior through um, pushing out communications, which are designed to convince certainly, and use many tactics in which to do so you know, I mean, obviously psychology plays into this, right. Um, yeah. yeah, human instincts and, and insecurities. And I mean, one thing that I personally am very interested in is the idea of creating a sense of, of nuance and needs, you know, where there wasn't before. And I, I think that you're, um, conversation early on about these factory workers who had a little bit of extra money to spend, but what to spend it on is kind of the classic example of, you know, giving people these ideas.
2: Absolutely. I, I want to take this to the absolute extreme, because again, showing you how powerful and, and how intuitive these advertisers have been from, from pretty much the beginning, I want to very briefly go back to, to World War I again, because I can't that you're talking about these needs when you get these propaganda campaigns, which are basically getting people to sign up. There is no more dangerous job than being an infantryman in yeah. a world war. And so yeah, yeah, if probably get, not. <laughs> ex- exactly. <laughs> probably so, that's about it. I'm going to take you to 1914, so just a few years earlier, to, to Britain now, so we're away, and a gentleman, a completely forgotten man, called Alfred Leete, That's L W E T E. Alfred Leete was an artist and working in advertising. And what he did is he took a picture of Lord Kitchener, General Kitchener, one of the leading generals of the British Army. And he exaggerated his features. He had a strong mustache, but he painted his mustache so large that the bristles were actually sticking out beyond his face. And he (laughs) he painted his face. How fearsome. Absolutely. So he painted a picture of of, uh, Kitchener looking straight out of the poster with a hat on his head. But Leet decided, that's all I needed. I just needed a strong face, and I'll also do one hand pointing a finger straight out of the poster. And that's it. If you think about it, it's an incredibly surrealist, impressionist image of a man. This is not a photo. This is a, a very hyper stylized image of a person. I haven't even put it in his shoulders or anything like that. And just simply written underneath this bristling mustache and frowning image of Kitchener was, your country needs you. That's it, and that advertising campaign by Leet was so powerful that hundreds of thousands of men signed up for World War I, But it was so effective that in 1917, an, an advertising expert, an artist in America called James Montgomery, mimicked it. Where he, this time round, obviously people it's Uncle don't know who Uncle Sam, it. I want I you for that. the U.S. I Army. I
1: know it, and
2: even the the Soviet Union picked up on it during their civil war they've got an image of uh, a partisan it, you know, it's, it's different you actually get the the hole from the head down to the, the basically the knees he's wearing a red jacket um, but he again is looking straight out of the poster he is pointing straight out at you and written underneath it in Russian Cyrillic is did you volunteer All of these are incredibly powerful. They're playing on you. you. What are you going to to do, young man? Talking to you. (laughs) Yeah. And and uh, however, that's not actually my favourite poster from this era there was one from 1915 and i love this one it's perhaps a little less well known but the image is nothing to do with the military it's really good what it is is a little boy and little girl playing in the living room there's some toy soldiers on the ground sitting in the chair is the father and the father's looking out at everybody a bit like kitchener but he's looking worried and he's got a little boy sitting on his lap and written underneath it was daddy what did you do in the great war basically oh, shaming you
1: shaming you know, oh if you
2: don't go to war for your country you're going to look like a coward to your children i mean in how 10
1: years time yeah that's in low. how that's a low blow
2: genius <laughs> i mean slash despicable is that?
1: i love you call it genius i'm saying oh that's so cruel
2: <laughs> so yeah so i i would say that these people will i mean look we're talking about human beings and we're talking about human beings which didn't have all the rules and restrictions of today, so they could go nuts with this stuff. And, and I, look, I want to be fair on this, okay? If you're fighting a world war where you need as many men to sign up as possible, nuance goes out the window. I've heard yeah, some yeah, people yeah. No, talk you're... about, ah, mm-hmm. oh, you know, these these propaganda videos and, and posters and things like that, they're so racist. It's all like, you don't do nuance in World War II. Yes, to the modern eye, it's all problematic, but that's not how you get people to sign up after Pearl Harbor or during. During World War One, or whatever. You make people angry, then they sign up, then they realize what a huge mistake it is. But by then, it's too late. You're it's on a ship and you're going to Europe. Too
1: late. That's right. And hopefully, you know, yeah. All right. Well, I, I actually, I love that, that framing that you set up with these military campaigns and the, and the um, recruitments because I, I, I think it, it's just a, a genius and very relatable example. But let's hear how some of these tactics worked on some consumer products.
2: Okay, well, I'm going to stick with the theme of war in a strange way for just a moment, but it's a very different war and I'm going to be talking about body hair. You see, in the middle of the uh, 19th century, so the middle of the 18, uh, 1800s, there was a largely forgotten war, particularly in, in um, places like America, because you weren't involved in it, uh, called the, well, at the time it was called the Russian War. It's now become known as the Crimean War. The, the
1: Crimean War. I've Absolutely. heard of that. Florence Nightingale, right?
2: Absolutely. That's she why we learn about not it. She's who we're talking She's right, about. like
1: right up there with Betsy Ross. This is part <laughs> of women's history in the United States. That's And that's all we know. So yes, t- tell me what I didn't learn about
2: the Crimean War. <laughs> so, I mean, look, the, the war actually happened all over the the Russian Empire, but a lot of the fighting happened in the Crimea. Um that is a long way from Britain. So, the British soldiers, uh, lot, there a lot of French soldiers there as well. It's it's one of these weird moments in history where you've got the Ottoman Empire fighting alongside France and Britain against the Russians all in the Crimea. Odd, I know. But the thing was this, because the supply chain was so bad, and and the Crimea is not known as a, a sunny tropical destination, particularly in winter, and some of the ships actually got shipwrecked with supplies, so that British soldiers, as part of their discipline, would keep their uniforms clean and be freshly shaven. This was to keep sort of discipline going in, in the ranks. However, if you're using dirty water and you're using a cutthroat razor, you're going to nick yourself. And there were so many men falling ill from infections, just keeping their skin clean, that the order went out to stop shaving. Now, this was just not the way the British Army did. However, there were a number of innovations in the Crimean War, and one of them was it wasn't the first war to be photographed. but It was the first major war to be photographed and also have it reported just days later back in the newspapers. This was war reportage for the first time on mass. And so for the first time, the whole world could see the British Army in action and they were covered in facial hair. (laughs) But nobody realized that these huge beards were the exception to the rule. This became the hot thing. If I'm a real man, I need to make sure that I grow some face fuzz, basically. And this was so important that it went over the Atlantic to America. And 10 years later, during the US Civil War, everybody is covered in facial hair, huge moustaches, sideburns, named after General Burnside, uh, beards everywhere. But the irony is they didn't need to do it but they were just mimicking what they'd already seen in the newspapers can, can, uh, can like, I oh, just that-
1: actually interject for a second here go for it I-, I just wonder what the excuse is of today's millennial generation well this is the and they're thing, not so- bushy beards they're like they're 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 meant to look scra- scraggly on purpose I think I don't get it I gotta say well, um, now I'm sidetracking you, but since we're talking no, about fine, facial but no, you're, you're hair. And
2: right. <laughs> look, you're quite right. When it comes to this facial hair to this day, again, it's making a statement. This whole, uh, well, I mean, uh, I, same thing with the hair as well. The, I've just fallen out of bed, but it actually took me half an hour to get all the wax in it to look oh, like I've just exactly. fallen out of bed. And you beard can get beard grooming. oil
1: oh, it's so gross. It just sounds awful.
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, literally beard oil. Uh, and, you know, there are all these different sort of like uh, razor and trimmer manufacturers. It's about maintenance, uh, manscaping. All these things are sort of like the the, the modern way of like how men are using the, you know, the fact that we're mammals and naturally covered in hair to create a sort of fashion statement. It, you know, I am deliberately not a kind of work in the office kind of guy, because look at the amount of facial hair I've oh, got. Oh, exactly.
1: I don't have to look a certain way. Although actually, I can say that from direct experience, I've got two brothers who work in public relations. So not exactly advertising, but it's the same wheelhouse. And one would not be hired if one did not have the correctly calibrated facial hair, sufficiently oiled and whatnot. And absolutely. <laughs> term manscaped i have to say I, it has an association in my mind with mansplained and it's not a positive one. <laughs> no
2: no but hey this, on, on the case of manscaping we're doing it to ourselves so no joke i know whatsoever. all right
1: but all right back back to the we're back in the trenches we're in crimea and everybody is hairy so you know <laughs> yeah, have everybody's keep, hair keep their distance because the hair is billowing out okay But we're
2: going to we're going to sort of fast forward a little bit. So uh, I mentioned the cutthroat razor. Hopefully everybody knows what I mean by that. And that was the main way people shaved. Indeed, in the year, let's say 1899, you would probably go for a haircut, uh, maybe every two or three weeks. And at the same time, you get a shave. You wouldn't be shaving every single day. But then in 1903, Gillette invents the safety razor. So this is uh, perhaps what, what a modern razor blade looks like. It's got a handle, it's got a small little razor, it's in its own little case. So you're less likely to cut yourself. I mean, you're still gonna cut yourself on a bad day. Uh, and particularly nowadays with, you know, your Wilkinson four blades or your Gillette Mac 3s and all this other stuff, you know, there are all these wonderful things with lubricating strips of and everything, but but if you like, this all comes from the 1903 invention of the Gillette safety razor. So this is where several different things happened. First of all, there became an entire business approach called the razor blade sale, which is the same with razor blades then to today and also something like a Barbie doll or an action man or GI Joe. And what it is, is if the actual razor itself is cheap the handle is cheap and it comes with perhaps one razor blade all of this is pretty low cost but of course that razor is only going to last a certain amount of time and all the replacements that only fit your your particular handle they all cost a small fortune and it's the same thing with like a barbie doll buying and just a barbie on its own with its one outfit pretty low cost but each one of the little outfits that you want to buy for barbie you know, it's a tiny amount of material but it costs an absolute fortune because nobody just wants one outfit same thing with gi joe so you know we've got all all sexes covered there but yeah there there's this entire business strategy around it and it's still in use today the other thing it did is it became revolutionary for men men now have the opportunity to shave every day and i just want to very quickly say you can see this In silent movies and perhaps some of the early uh, talkies as well, where basically if you had the time to have a luxurious moustache, a big bushy moustache like Kitchener, then you were clearly upper class. You clearly had time on your hands to luxuriate and giving it the oil and what have you. But if you still wanted to be a man and have... um, to, uh, and, and be seen as sort of uh, yeah, being able to grow a moustache, but you, you, you didn't have time to look after it, you would have a postage stamp moustache. So in other words, when you look at Charlie Chaplin as the tramp, the fact that he's got that little moustache instantly told the people in the audience right now, he's working class, he's not upper class. And he's forever kicking in the bottom, these guys with big mustaches. So that's the working class kicking up at the upper class. Literally that situation. Interesting. Same thing with Laurel and Hardy, Uh, Oliver Hardy, had that little postage stamp moustache. It was popular throughout the entire industrialized world until this little Austrian corporal called Adolf Hitler decided Ah. to also have it. Again, there's lots of debates as to why he he trimmed down his larger moustache. One, I think a pretty good explanation is to fit in a gas mask, but also again, to probably show I come from humble backgrounds. Possibly, that is conjecture. But of course, ever since he had it, nobody else can have it anymore. It's now associated with evil. And yet at the time, it was almost a, a wearing a badge of pride of your humble origins.
1: I'm, I'm a common man. Hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So by 1920, Gillette is selling hundreds of thousands of these safety razors. It, it is just flying off the shelves, but they hit a peak. They can't sell anymore because all the men have bought them. So they go and talk to Arthur. They talk to him in the advertising agency, say, what can we do? What, who else can we possibly sell these to? And Arthur spots, but because he's been to the speakeasies, that women's short, <laughs> uh, skirts are getting shorter. Also, the sleeveless dress is becoming more fashionable. And so he says, why don't we convince women that they need to start shaving that they need to start worrying about body hair the, the the very first place that they went for was ladies underarm hair i won't go into every place you can shave okay but what yes the very, i would
1: like to keep my g rating thank you so much. yeah
2: absolutely absolutely uh, other places are available that's all i'm going to say <laughs> but, um, but the very first um, uh, but the very first uh, adverts about it about it were just a bare face lie it simply stated that all the ladies in Paris, Paris, heartland of fashion, Paris, everybody wants to be Parisian and fashionable. The, the ladies of Paris are shaving their arms and they were I don't very... think the
1: ladies of Paris do that even today. That is amazing. But that's the, thing.
2: the ladies <laughs> in Paris had no idea that this was their reputation in America, but it caught on like wildfire. And indeed in the, I mean, it, it wasn't just Gillette to be fair. There are lots of depilatory creams as well. So these are creams that you put on and basically you can rub off your skin. It, it very quickly evolved into shaving legs as well. But the, but you literally in the adverts, they referred to female uh, body hair as a, objectionable or embarrassing. This is shaming women into starting to uh, sort of shave themselves. Um, And this um, really hit a peak in the 1920s. And indeed to this day, um, Karen, I'm going to ask a slightly personal question here. I do apologize. Have you ever shaved any of your body hair ever in your life?
1: Of course, I I don't want to be shameful and shamed and uh, yes.
2: But isn't there a part of you who just like to be as hairy as possible? It's a lot less trouble, isn't it?
1: Well, my head has a lot of hair on it. That's for sure.
2: (laughs) Sadly, mine doesn't. But uh, yeah.
1: But what you have, you use well.
2: oh thank you but yeah so so if you like if, if you're a woman listening to this going oh god damn it I've gotta I've gotta shave my legs again I'm you know I'm going out on a date uh, I'm gonna have to you have the advertising uh, campaign particularly Gillette in the 1920s lying to women that is still echoing on a hundred years later it has changed the perception of beauty of women around the world I mean perhaps not absolutely everywhere but a lot of women uh, around the world a hundred years ago they would never have worried about these sorts of things we it is now a perceived necessity to to keep the amount of body hair down to a minimum.
1: I love it. That's really fascinating. I I didn't know any of that. Um, I didn't know any of that. Uh, So what about this cereal? Do you have a story about cereal? I I I find cereal to be just incomprehensible, frankly, unless it's a really... Uh, sort of meaty, muesli granola stuff with nuts and, and raisins. But if, if I just had, for example, a bowl of cornflakes, I would be passing out um, shaky and starving an hour later. There's nothing to it.
2: <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. And in the 1920s, there were two, in America, there were two giants of the cereal industry. There were Kellogg's and Post. And no matter how much money, these two companies spent, and in 1920s money, we're talking about millions of dollars being spent across the continental United States uh, to promote cereal consumption. Uh, Kellogg's, that's a whole other story. Um, the, it was back, basically founded as, a, as a, basically a health organization. And indeed the original cornflakes were deliberately bland because they were considered to be a health food, but they would help with digestion. But over the years, well, we largely put sugar on them and we call them fresh. Frosties now uh, but anyway the the point yeah, is even that- better
1: that means i would pass out in 10 minutes after you.
2: there we go so so <laughs> kellogg's and forget Post the hour <laughs> both had basically 50 50 market share of uh, of the of the marketplace of cereals and then we come to 1929 and the stock market crash. And we now go into the great depression that starts in 29 and really doesn't sort of properly recover until the late thirties. Even then you could argue that it was World War II that that properly kickstarted the American economy again. But it, so it's a tough lean 10 years for, for the American people. But in those 10 years, I'm curious, one of the companies decided, do you know what? Um, you know, <laughs> We've tried everything to beat the other guy let's actually save our money. Let's stop advertising uh, and, and you know, let's keep that money if you like in the war chest uh, to just keep going. So do you think that that was Post or do you think that was Kellogg's? Which one do you think decided to, to basically just stop advertising because you know, we're, we, we need to batten down the hatches because this is the biggest recession the country's ever been in? Post. You're absolutely right. So but it, you know it, why I know
1: that, or, or because I you were that. you were taught
2: it as well, yeah?
1: No, 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 I wasn't taught it. I, I just, I Kellogg's definitely has a bigger market share in cereals in the absolutely. U.S. even today, just like Coke trounces Pepsi. I mean, yeah, Pepsi's absolutely. there, but you you got to go looking for it. So, so I assumed. Was-
2: yeah. So this was taught to me as an example about why you need to keep advertising regardless, because Kellogg said people, you know, people may be losing jobs, but they'll still need to eat something for breakfast. So let's keep promoting Kellogg's. And indeed, <laughs> that was we'll the,
1: serve the public in this way. <laughs> well, yeah.
2: I mean, wait, look, let's face it. It's, it's, it's a pretty cheap way to get some food in you. Um, uh, to be blunt, okay? You know, a bowl of cereal. I think all of us at some point in the evening, we've been, you know, bored, hungry, can't be bothered to cook. So you, you just grab a huge bowl of muesli and it fills you up. Job done, okay? Not proud of it. You know, that could have been my student days or it could have been during lockdown. I'm not going to tell you. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing that, that um, you know, there, there is, cereal has its place. But going back to your original comment, yes, I'd prefer some lovely buttery toast and some bacon. That sounds amazing. Um, so. So, yes. Yeah, so there's an example where actually they no matter how much money they spent, they couldn't beat the competition. But when there was a fundamental change to the marketplace, one of them went, went one way, save it, don't spend it. And Kellogg's decided to keep going and indeed, by the 1930s, Kellogg's was the dominant cereal brand. So in the space of 10 years, after spending not nearly as much money they'd spend in the previous 10 years, they beat the other guy. Now, Post is absolutely still around. Perhaps their best known brand, if you're walking down the supermarket aisles, is, um, is Grape Nuts. That I was just a- going to
1: say, that's the only one I know. And I love
2: Grape Nuts. <laughs> so- there we go. Yes. <laughs> that's um, like so the, the only,
1: the- but those are solid. That There's actually some substance to, to Grape Nuts.
2: Yeah, so look, uh, I just feel obliged. We, we are not sponsored on this podcast by either of these
1: organizations. <laughs> Other serials maybe we, are available. Maybe we will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> Raz, Aiden, I hope you're listening in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so there we go. So, um, so th- th- that's the story of, uh, of a serial war in the advertising world in the 1920s and 30s, which Arthur might well have been involved in.
1: I love that.
2: So uh, w- uh, one last example. Is uh, what's widely considered the most effective advertising campaign of all time.
1: Now, I can't wait.
2: Indeed. Now, obviously, uh, Karen, uh, I I know at at least some point you 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 were married. I'm sure there was a proposal involved at some point. Uh, Did you get a diamond ring?
1: Damn straight.
2: (laughs) Okay, fine. Now look. Let's be honest, everybody. Diamond rings are pretty modern. OK, so let's put that to one side. But I'm just wondering, Karen, from your sort of like anthropological side of things, when you are making this huge commitment to another person, how far back in history in in the West? Let's make this easy in the West. Do you think giving a ring of some description, not at marriage, but sort of saying you are my betrothed? We are to be wed. You know, how far back do you think that goes for the common person? You know, let's not talk about kings and queens here.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I I do know that there is some precedent in in sort of early modern Europe for that. I don't know how widespread it was. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you unveil this
2: okay all access. right well uh, thank you karen uh, but by and large most women at a point of proposal would have largely expected nothing particularly in america it was like okay fine let's get married next saturday that would have kind of been the conversation arthur might well have had with his his good lady uh before they got married and had the kid that i mentioned earlier on but going back to the to the um, engagement ring. So the the actually being given a diamond engagement ring was a marketing campaign by De Beers. Uh, they are a massive South African uh, uh, diamond oh, company. Oh, I've heard of them. <laughs> they have a virtual world mono- monopoly on yeah, diamonds. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you into a little secret, everybody. You probably all know that diamonds are made out of carbon. They are... Um, you know, in theory, you can make them in a laboratory, people have, um, as opposed to gold, which you just can't make, okay? There's a finite amount of gold on planet Earth. There are actually, there's far more diamond on planet Earth than there is gold. Um, So therefore, De Beers stores diamonds because if they released everything they've mined, diamonds would suddenly become useless, worthless, like, you know, cubic zirconia or something like that. So De Beers has it in their best interest to, to keep this flow of diamonds down to a minimum, but they weren't selling enough of them by the 1930s. So just like with the shaving example, they just started lying and they said, hey, if you're gonna marry a gal, you should buy her a diamond ring. And there was clearly a conversation about how much, how much should they spend on a diamond ring? How about a month's salary? Yeah, a month's salary. Oh, diamonds sounds- are forever this suits. is where the diamond is <laughs> I- I- is forever comes from because diamonds in theory could last forever but actually their resell value is is terrible because there are lots of diamonds out there in the world so they don't want you to sell it off they want you to hold it onto your finger till the day you die because it's your engagement ring and then of course you're going to have the wedding ring and then you're going to even have an eternity yeah, but, uh, ring when you start having starving kids so this okay, but, 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 in wait, in wait, wait 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 the 1930s yeah
1: i get it but now, I, I think it's important to point out here with my anthropology hat on that after the poor bloke blows a month's salary or or maybe more, depending on, you know, whether oh, he we wants can come to on to that in a moment, press the in-laws. But, you know, uh, once the financial outlay is, is made, you know, yeah, you're expected to wear it until you die under the, you know, sort of romantic notion that the, the union will last that long. And and it it, it becomes sort of, priceless in the real sense. And I actually would argue that that's at least what modern advertising capitalizes on brilliantly. They sort of slip in, you know, the fact that you, <laughs> you really ought to spend up so that you impress your bride-to-be and, and her family and all of her friends. But they're really selling you a happily ever after, right? That's the story Oh, absolutely. There. Yeah,
2: that's the modern way. In, in And so you said possibly more than a month's salary. This campaign was hugely successful far more successful than they ever anticipated it it just blew the doors off uh this the you know the sales of diamonds and it was so successful they basically sat down together again only months later and went this is going so well should we change it how do we get them to spend more and went why don't we tell them it should be 3 months salary yeah okay 3 months <laughs> literally just lying and making it up as they as they went along oh and by the way while we're at it on the point of jewelry all this stuff about your your uh your month stone or your mood stone or whichever stone you were born under this, again, was just advertising to try and sell jade or, or whatever uh, to, to people. And actually, if you look at the different months, you'll notice that there's huge variation. September isn't always sapphire. It could be emerald, ruby, whatever, whatever that particular area decided arbitrarily would be the, the stone of that particular month. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is fascinating to me. I'm, I'm so glad that you, you brought me on because. Well, you know, I've talked to you in the past about the harem and the Ottoman Empire. That doesn't have any impact on the modern world, but we're still seeing a hundred years later an impact on society from rather dubious advertising campaigns that that were executed out of just sheer avarice, sort of sheer lying, just see if they could get away with it. And oh boy, did they?
1: Uh, Yeah. And okay, so this just tees up my next question for you which is how different or is it you know advertising today compared to arthur's day you know what is still the same
2: there are a lot of regulations nowadays so for example it is illegal to say in an in a, a alcohol advert that it will make you a better driver because it can be demonstrably shown <laughs> it absolutely it wouldn't you would never get that yeah, on television I, you, yeah And also, you wouldn't have a a, again an advertising campaign for beer where you see six year olds drinking it because again, they're not allowed to do that. So, I mean, there are lots and lots of uh, of um, lots of different layers of rules and regulations there are unwritten rules i'll I'll put this out to you the next time you see an alcohol advert you will never see somebody sitting there on their own drinking a beer or or even worse a strong liquor because they might be an alcoholic you know they're, they're trying to drink their pain away and that's just not allowable so you'll always get in an alcohol advert two or three people together because now it's social interaction Uh, And, uh, you know, at the end of adverts, at at least in in the United Kingdom, at the end, they say hashtag drink aware or please drink responsibly. So from the advertiser's point of view, their job is to try and sell as much of this alcohol as possible. But by law, at the end, they're meant to remind everybody don't drink too much, which is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. Similarly, with gambling in the United Kingdom, they've got um, gamble aware or the other phrase, when the fun stops, stop. So, you know, there are all these regulations. There's also sort of uh, racial uh, regulations as well to stop, you know, gross injustices or, or interpretations of different cultures and races. So we are very well protected nowadays. But of course, we now move into social media where it's again yeah. the Wild West. I can say whatever I want on Twitter. And I, you know, maybe um, there is this dark art where people set up fake accounts. This has happened with uh, with, um, movies, for example. You'll get these, you'll get uh, sometimes, most recently, Kong versus Godzilla has got a really bad review online because people are still angry about Zack Snyder's Justice League. So they decided to punish them by putting on bad reviews for Kong versus Godzilla. It's a way to sort of like get revenge. Similarly, there's been examples of people on Amazon paying for good reviews of their books or, um, or, or movies where they suddenly they get all the, basically everybody involved in the advertising agency all have to go onto, the, onto, the, onto Rotten Tomatoes and give it a five star kind of thing or IMDB. <laughs> so yeah, there, there, there are still these dark arts still exist um, uh, obviously I can't start naming names. I mean, I've given you examples there and the King Kong versus Godzilla I, you know, is, is, a, is one where they can absolutely prove the metrics where they, they in essence being critic attacked or negative bombed uh, sometimes it's called. So yeah, it's evolved is, is how I would answer that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and where do you, where do you see advertising going in the future? Well, if
2: you saw the movie Minority Report, there's a great scene where um, uh, Tom. Oh, Cruise, I did. It was
1: a long time ago. I, I Tom
2: Cruise gets a new set of eyeballs, and he starts walking down the uh, because everybody's eyeballs are being sort of like uh, triggered. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. We'll walk uh, us through. Walk us through
1: the little plot summary, would you? Because I can't even remember the details, and most so, so some listeners can't either
2: because your retina is being scanned all the time in this movie you're you're basically stamped it, it's like you've got your file is available to everybody so as you're walking down the street it'll show you the news that you want to see or you know the uh, li- literally he walks past a uh, this is where he's got the new eyeballs and literally it's a gap advert going oh how are those chinos you bought a couple of weeks ago and we are not far off that i, I, mean, I was just gonna say this them.
1: hits a little bit close yeah this
2: isn't retina scanning but all you have to (laughs) do is think of all the cookies you have on your on your phone and and laptop and yeah you just keep going on to websites it's like okay i casually looked for my wife's birthday, you know, a pair of silk pajamas, women's silk pajamas, but the computer doesn't know that. And that's constantly telling me how I should buy silk pajamas. <laughs> like I'm, I'm here to buy paint, okay? Why do you think I'm still want to do silk pajamas?
1: <laughs> well, but then, and then they give you the options in these ad pop-ups sometimes, um, yep. AdSense or whatever it's called, we, you know, ad is inappropriate, ad covers other content or already purchased this item. I mean, it really, it's quite something.
2: Absolutely, we are now in this super connected world, and there's a very good uh, line where, the, the, it, and remember this when you're on social media: if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So, for example, Facebook, oh, that's right, using, because
1: the, your, it's your information, right?
2: Yeah, it's your information that they're basically using to start pumping advertising your way on Facebook or wherever. So, absolutely.
1: And you know, okay, so this this actually also brings us back, I think, to this point I raised earlier about um, expenditures. And I really don't, I mean, I I don't know what, what the implication is of all of this, as you put it, I think so well, this dark art of how advertising has moved off traditional media like print newspapers and magazines and TV to live, you know, arguably at least as much on social media platforms that, you know, doesn't directly cost agencies or our consumer product companies money in terms of like a, a traditional campaign, but of course they are they are participating in in this sort of network in which you know we're giving up all of our all of our predilections and telling these people how to address us and how to reach us where we are already online well, all well, the time. You,
2: I hear you on that, but if you think for a moment how do you think Facebook makes all this money when you use it for free? And the answer is because you said they don't, they don't spend the money. So all those ad campaigns that we were talking about in newspapers, they still exist, but they're now a tiny sliver. I remember on that marketing magazine, uh, I remember the first year they had the, the, basically a big pie chart, like how much is spent on outdoor media, that's posters, or how much is spent on magazines, print media, or TV, or radio, or whatever. Um, I remember the first time 1%. Um, For uh, online advertising. Nowadays, it's like 60%. It's not everything. You know, people still have posters. People still spend money on PR campaigns. You you mentioned PR earlier. You know, there are other ways to get out. I don't want to get too complicated. This isn't suddenly a podcast on uh, like how to get a degree in advertising, but there's literally something called the marketing mix, which is a list of every single way you can reach out to the people. And there's no doubt the number one now is, is social media or online, but it's not the only way. But yes, you get all this really clever, intelligent data. Back in 1995, I would have loved to have known that there were people in, uh, let's say, Manchester. Uh, there, there are sort of like a thousand people in Manchester who were marketing people looking for jobs. Today, you can yeah. get that information. I couldn't have got that in 1995, but that would yeah. have really helped me sell some some advertising space to those guys.
1: Oh, no, no doubt. And I, I mean, yes, absolutely. I I didn't mean to suggest that there wasn't paid advertising going on all the time on these social media platforms but having worked in advertising myself and understanding all of the sort of fixed costs of producing what we used to call you know print collateral and and, you know flyers and and billboards and things like that outdoors as you as you said um you know (laughs) looking at the the statistics as a percentage of gross domestic product in the united states Looking at these figures, so in 1920 it was three percent. That's huge. I mean, that's crazy. And uh, you know, as you said, right? You know, completely um, predictably, it plummeted over the next decade and a half or so as a result of the of the the Great Depression. But it zoomed right back up. You know, in 1940. And it hovered around two and a half percent in the year 2000, and so I, you know, I just would love to know how that uh, has changed. The, the chart drops off then, but it, it does show a steep decline from there. So you know, again, this is perhaps beyond the purview of this discussion, but um, I, I really am shocked that in the early days of advertising, it was that big a chunk of overall GDP.
2: Absolutely. America is the heartland of advertising. You have a brand to sell. When you think of Hollywood, you know that was something that was by even by the 1920s was a global brand. Coca-Cola also was becoming, wasn't quite there yet, but it was becoming a global brand. A fun fact about Coca-Cola, what really did tip it over the edge was World War II because soldiers aren't generally allowed to drink alcohol. Um, so, but what can we offer them? We can offer them Coke. So anywhere the US Army went, they started setting up factories. So I'm not saying that they were—they didn't exist elsewhere. Um, the, for example, Coca-Cola in Germany during World War II weren't given any of the syrup by America. Strange that there was kind of a war going on, but the—the actual—the owners managed to concoct a kind of uh, carbonated orange drink. Um, and they had this meeting uh, amongst all the advertisers and the brands and said, you know, we, you know, what are we gonna call this? We need to give it a name, can't call it Coca-Cola. And they said, um, and basically said, you gotta use your imagination, you gotta use your imagination. And imagination in German is fantasy and that's how you got Fanta. So Fanta was drunk by
0: ah! the German
2: <laughs> soldiers and Coca-Cola was drunk by the American soldiers. And then after the war, the two were combined
1: love that. You're always so full of, oh, you know what here, I was just gonna say, you're so full of gems of information, Gem, but it, it sounds too repetitive. Still true, still true. Um, so what, what is it about the advertising industry both then and now that most interests you as a populist historian?
2: I think it's the story of humanity, okay? A, a, a bad advertising campaign simply isn't very interesting. But a good, good advertising campaign, it might be morally bankrupt or anything else, but it, it tells you something fundamental about humans. Going back to that diamond example with the engagement ring, doesn't it feel natural now that a, a you know a young guy might give a young girl an engagement ring, and and you know it feels romantic, and yet all you are doing is helping to prop up a massive mining organization with its with its uh, history is steeped in colonialism in South Africa, for heaven's sakes. There's lots of problematic things there, but let's push that to one side. It is a sign. It is a symbol of love, and 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 love has not changed over the last. 10,000 years, but how we demonstrate it has. So, you know, be it shaving or diamonds or cereal or Coca-Cola, you know, there are all these things tell us a little bit about who we are as human beings. That's what I like about it.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I think there's something really interesting to consider too, in terms of, you know, what we might call, you know, the anthropological <laughs> function or significance of advertising. So we talked a bit about psychology earlier, but, you know, advertising has been a really potent vehicle for cultural assimilation, right? You know, encouraging immigrants to exchange whatever's traditionally their habit, their tastes, what have you in favor of the modern way, the American way, or, you know, whatever it happens to be, whatever lifestyle they're aspiring to, you know, become a native to, to use that, that term loosely, a part of.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely agree.
1: Jam, <laughs> as always, it's been an amazing pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, this has just been really fun to talk about. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and, and insights into the crazy world of, of advertising, then and now.
2: My absolute pleasure, Karen. I always have so much fun coming onto the podcast so thank you for having me again.
1: Thanks, Frank. That was well. I'm glad you like it, Harry. You know, you're a darn good-looking fellow. I'll bet you have lots of girls crazy about you.
0: Oh, I don't know. I...
1: Oh, you're just being modest. But tell me, how do you feel when you're in love?
0: How do I feel? My gosh, Harry, it's the most wonderful
2: feeling in the world. Why, when I'm in love, I'm just breezing along with a breeze. I never mind the bumps or the ruts along the highway of life. I float through life on a cloud.
1: And that folks is exactly the way you feel in the famous Dodge Air Glide ride. If you haven't experienced this thrill, visit the showroom of your local Dodge dealer. See for yourself the extra value you get in this big, new money-saving Dodge. Believe me, folks, it certainly is more car for less money. Think of it. The new Dodge Beauty Winner of 1936 now sells for only $640 and up. This is that factory Detroit. The business dealings of early 20th century ad men were neither regulated nor even bound by any particular moral code. Like the clients they served, these businessmen were looking above all to make a buck. And in order to do that, they had to convince people, lots of people, to part ways with a growing stash of discretionary income that just needed spending. Sure now diamonds are a girl's or a boy's best friend lauded as the embodiment of a love that binds until the end of life itself do the self-serving corporate origins of this utterly made-up link between diamonds and true love diminish its value to those who cherish its instantly recognizable and deeply meaningful narrative as jem noted The United States is a country that's always known how to tell a story, even if it's struggled to tell its own of late. Whatever you believe, the undeniable power of advertising to shape cultural norms as surely as it drives individual action begs a few really interesting questions. I mean, how much of what we accept at face value today derives from the hustle of early modern marketers like Arthur? Arthur. What exactly are the subliminal messages we receive daily, scrolling as we do through Instagram, TikTok, and the like? Do we buy the things we buy because we truly want or need them, or because we're buying into a particular story conceived by an ad man or ad woman who has crafted a story of aspiration or entitlement so powerful that we hardly realize what we're buying into? As Don Draper said in Mad Men, people want to be told what to do so badly that they'll listen to anyone. If anything, I think the upshot of today's episode is that when money's on the line, there's always going to be someone trying to get us to listen, and to react, as often as not by opening our wallets. All the more reason to remind ourselves that our attention isn't just the most valuable commodity we possess to spend as we choose. Arguably, it's the hottest one on today's consumer market. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.
0: Hey there, you can follow today's wonderful guest on Twitter at Jem Diduchu. And of course, check out his book, Edge of Life, which examines parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic and Spanish flu in New York 100 years earlier. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Also, for visibility's sake, if you like the show, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Working over Time is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan La Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.